Storie Libere Presents Learn silence At least with your friends, with your lovers, with your family, with your fellow travelers here Sit in silence sometimes Don't keep gossiping Don't keep talking Stop talking, and not only on the outside. Stop the inner speech. Stay on pause. Sit down. Don't do anything. Just be present with each other. And soon you'll start to find a new way to communicate. And that's the right way. Start communicating through silence sometimes. Holding your friend's hand, sit quietly. Just look at the moon. Feel the moon, both of you. Feel it in silence, and you see a communion happens. Not just communication, but communion. Your hearts begin to beat with the same rhythm. You start to feel the same space you begin to feel the same joy. You begin to overlap with each other. This is communion. You have spoken without saying anything, and there will be no misunderstanding. We left Bindu at a very difficult moment in her story, like a pause before deciding whether or not to say something she knows and I don't. Bindu decided to speak, entrusting me with her words, and by doing so, letting me unveil the meaning of the long silence she has kept until today. This is Roberta Lippi. I write for TV, radio, and the web. You're listening to Soli, a journey into the memories of children who grew up in Osho's commune between the beginning of the 70s and the first half of the 80s. I interrupted Bindu's story when I realized that she went to school in Koswan, and I can't help but ask her a question. I asked her if she ever met Nicolas Schulz, the child Tim Guest talks about at the beginning of his book. And now we've been in silence for a while, we can start again. Sì, ero lì. Sì, sì, ero mio amico. So I, I never met Tim Guest, and, um, but I was at Coswan School at the time that the boy whose story was told in the media that he killed himself happened. Um, I unfortunately was one of the two people that found him hanging in the woods. There's been no proof ever that this boy killed himself. He was a wonderful boy and also a very daring child. He took risks, physical risks, like climbing up ladders and standing on the roof of a building. And, you know, he would take risks. And in the woods outside Koswan or just in, uh, in front of the, the building, we had a swing, a very long swing over this, uh, this hill with a piece of wood in, at the bottom of it where we, we used to go in the woods and hang out and swing on this crazy swing, which was, you know, it was, it was the 80s. There was no health and safety. We 
no, it was the 90s, actually, early 90s. Um, when I found him in the woods, he had, he was hanging in the woods. He was dead already. And he had the cord of the swing around his neck. This is the moment my heart stopped. On one hand, for the disbelief of finding myself, by pure chance, right in front of the type of information that would appeal to any journalist. Bindu knows it well. She's the one who makes me notice it, almost as a warning. On the other hand, because I am completely shaken by the empathy I feel towards that little girl, forced by life to experience such a trauma, such an enormous drama, that it is impossible for me to imagine. I can feel, in Bindu's voice, all the effort of remembering. It's never been proven whether he did this by choice, whether it was an accident, uh, whether it was one of his activities that have gone seriously wrong. And that's the thing, and this is one of the reasons why I, I was reluctant to do this podcast, and, and I am still somehow reluctant to talk about my experience as a Sanyasin kid, especially in Koswan, because my experience of the media is always that they will take something that can sell papers, that is sensationalizing a, situ a situation, and push the agenda. And I think Tim Guest's agenda was exactly this. He was never there. He didn't know any of us. And he, as a journalist, made an assumption. And I know what that's like being a child in, in a school where you are suddenly the sex guru school of Bhagwan, where you as a child are labeled different, outrageous, scary, whatever it is, just to feed a media rhetoric, just to feed a story that suits people to believe that we are different and scary and outrageous. Koswan was a proper school. We did exams. We did GCSEs. We studied. Yes, we also meditated. Yes, we also spoke about our emotions um, and feelings. Yes, we were creative, crazy children who uh, were individuals and were really seen for individuality. And that might have scared some people. But I also know how easy a rhetoric can be fueled. And I think as a sannyas kid, it was only in that moment that I really realized the difference between being a sannyas kid and not a sannyasin kid. And the rhetoric of the them and us. We were in the school and there's the outside world who hated us. From the village people in the nearby village to the wider media group. And that was tough. That was really tough. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm emotional about it now. To live in a world where you are labeled different. And we were really no different to countless of other boarding schools and schools out there who have accidents where children take their own lives, who have accidents where children accidentally lose their lives. There are countless boarding schools where children are lonely and sad and abused. And somehow those stories aren't um, as interesting to the media as the one, the ones of the sex guru school. When I was still in elementary school, I used to go every afternoon to play volleyball in a friend's yard. 
When the ball ended up on the roof of the garages, she would climb quickly and bravely up a side net, reach the roof, throw down the ball, and start playing again. One day, I don't know how, she slipped. She fell on the other side of the net, face down. She wouldn't move, and I was sure she was dead. I remember everything else very confusedly. How I asked for help, how her father managed to recover her, the moments in her house waiting for my parents to pick me up while they took her to the hospital, the relief in her mother's and sister's eyes when I said that we had eaten a berry yogurt, and them discovering that she hadn't vomited blood. Well, that day, that reckless friend of mine could have died. We weren't there. None of us were there to see how things had gone in Koswan. Only Nicholas knows. And today I feel a great confusion thinking about the certainties of Tim Guest, who certainly had attributed to that child his own sadness, but in doing so had also given his signature to the story of Nicholas. It just has always been the case, and that's, that's been really difficult to understand as a child. That was really tough to understand. And maybe we have to act like those who don't know anything, like we don't know what really happened. Kosuan will close only in March 2002, long after that incident, due to lack of funds. But Bindu has already been gone for almost 10 years. She is ready to face her adult age. She already has a clear idea on what she wants to do. I was in Koswan, which was in North Devon, uh, from 1987 to 1993, I think. Uh, so from about the age of 10 to almost 17. Um, yeah, in Koswan, I did my exams. I, you know, the, I don't know how they are in Italy, but here in, in the UK, they, they're called GCSEs and they're exams that you do from the age of 14 to 16. So I did those and I did one exam that you would do from 16 to 18 as well. But at the end, when we were all, or at least my group of friends and my group of peers were of an age, we, Coastwan just couldn't cater for, for teenagers of a certain age. Um, they just weren't, they didn't have exams ready for for the college part so we all went our separate ways you know because one ended and it, we we had all spent so many years together and some people went back to their homes uh, so some people went back to their countries some people went to London some people went to college in Oxford so it, lots of different choices but uh, everyone sort of went their their separate way so yeah, so once I left Koswan, I, I I always knew I wanted to be an actress. Or I at the time when I was sixteen, almost seventeen, I wanted to be an actress, and I knew I wanted to go to drama school. But most drama schools, uh, whether they were in the UK or the US, wouldn't accept students uh, that were uh, under eighteen years of age. So I had some time to sort of kill, and um, I was pretty single-minded and knew that that's what I wanted to do. So once I graduated from Koswan, I went to, to India. I went to live with my mum. She was in Pune at the time, and I stayed with her for six months. I really needed to, to see my mum at that time and just spend, spend time with her and live with her for six months, which I hadn't done for a really long time. 
And then after that, uh, came back to Switzerland and moped around a bit, um, not knowing what to do next. And uh, my mum suggested that I go to Germany, to Munich, to learn German. Um, so that's what I did. I went to Munich with my boyfriend at the time and um, lived in a house uh, which was also shared by other sannyasins, grown-up sannyasins. And I had a room in this house and would go to work. I got my job, uh, got myself a job. First in a cinema, actually, um, which was great fun. Uh, and then I got a job uh, in a bar, and I didn't speak a word of German, but I learned German in those six months. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the modern communes of Osho, at least from the 90s onwards, was that, that people didn't really live inside the communes. There were loads of communes all around the world. And of course, some communes had people living in them and maybe there was like a core group of people that lived in the commune. But then what happened was there was lots of people surrounding the commune that had their own lives and lived in their own houses and in their own places, but still frequented the commune. So they would come to the communes to meditate or to socialize, to see each other and have some food. And, um, and so in Munich, that's what that's what happened. I and I arrived and stayed with the friends of my mum for a couple of weeks, and then I got myself a room in this big, beautiful house that was lived in by a group of sannyasins. They were all adults and having their own lives and, and so on and so forth. But I, um, it felt like a safe place to share a life with people who knew about how I grew up, or maybe shared some of the life ethoses and yet we were all independent and had our own jobs and, and our own things going on outside of, of this house so it was like a house share but with sannyasins and that felt safe to me I suppose it felt at the age of 17 almost 18 um, it felt like a nice safe introduction into the world coming from boarding school into the big wide world it felt like a nice stepping stone And uh, and then after that, I went back to Pune, where my mum had gone back to for another six months, where I prepared to audition for drama school. So I worked on this, the speeches and the, the things I needed to prepare in, in the ashram there. There was I was very involved with the drama group and with the theatre productions and very involved with a, a particular theatre teacher who really helped guide me, who's also sannyasin in the commune. Um, and then after that, I came to England and auditioned for drama schools in London. I decided to go to, to come to the UK because I'd lived here for so long and I knew, um, I knew the culture, I knew the humor, I knew the ethos of the UK more than, than America and, um, got into three drama schools. And in September, 2000, uh, in, sorry, 1995, I started a three year course at the drama center, London, which is in. Camden Town Chalk Farm. And that's that. Bindu builds her future as an actress, but she doesn't forget her origins. Like many other sannyasin teenagers, she feels the pull of the past, Pune and India, with one difference. Others go in search of something nostalgic, while for her, Pune has something more. She was born in Pune. She wasn't just a passerby. 
So yeah, so no, I spent these two stints, these for the first six months and then another six months uh, between the ages of 16 and a half and um, almost 18. Yeah, I mean, Pune too was different in some ways and, and same in others. I mean, I used to, even when I was in Koh Swan, every December uh, over Christmas, I would go to India, to Pune to spend a month there because my mum was there most of the time. So it felt familiar to me. I knew the commune and I'd seen it evolved, evolve and grow. And I suppose the, the difference between Pune 1 for me and Pune 2 was that it became a more chic place. It became more spa-like. Like it became more aesthetic and beautiful uh, with these black pyramids and marble. And it was, but then the times were different. We were in the 90s, we were no longer in the 70s. So times had changed, but it was more appealing to a Western world. Um, uh, so it became more aesthetic. For me, Pune represented a safe place to go. So uh, we weren't thrown out into the big wide world. It felt like you were you were still challenged with new experiences, new people. Um, you had the freedom of uh, living outside and um, going down to town and whatnot. But it 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 felt like it was safe. There was something safe about it rather than just going to London at the age of 16. And there were different groups of, you know, if you wanted to paint and be a painter and do art, then you could get involved with the art group and spend the day painting. Um, if you wanted to do theatre and, and drama, then then you'd get involved with that. So, um, so that's what I did. That was what I was really, really into. That's what I wanted to do. And so I got involved with with the drama department and was very active in putting on the shows and plays. Um, I had a fantastic drama teacher who really inspired me and helped me. So it gave me real focus. Some people have sport, some people had meditation, some people, um, one of my friends got involved with the newspaper um, and photography. So there were, there, it was like a chance to to do what you wanted to do, but in a safe microcosm. Seeing it like that, it makes us think about our summer holidays when we were kids, those which lasted three months, spent in a microcosm made of places and people we knew, while life was still to be written and all the worlds still possible. We were unaware that there was a sannyasin world out there. And while Bindu goes on talking about that image, that slightly absurd parallel gets even stronger. I mean, I, I, it sounds like I'm painting this picture of this oasis where, where, where we used to just hang out and sort of bliss out. Uh, I also want to point out that we were teenagers. We were you know, rowdy teenagers. We all had our own scooters and we would, um, you know, hang out and party and uh, there was a there was a place that called the pyramids by the river and that was outside the commune so we had our life in the commune should we choose that that's what we wanted to do and then and then we also had our life outside the commune so we would hang out and party till five in the morning in the middle of a field uh by the river or you know we were still involved in the o oasis of the commune mixed with the chaos and color of of india and the life that India has to offer. So it, it was a sort of dichotomy of, of these two worlds. And we were teenagers, you know, enjoying that. 
If we think about teenagers, their desire to explore and discover, their innate need for rebellion, their hunger for extreme freedom, I don't see any difference between me getting back home at 5 a.m. and Bindu doing it. Except maybe the fact that at some point she had to put on a robe in addition to her bathing suit. I asked her to tell me how it worked. So, so yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the color orange, uh, we weren't forced to wear orange anymore, not forced. We weren't uh, asked to wear orange anymore. That, I think that changed in the early 90s. So we were wearing normal clothes. When I was in Koswan, I was also wearing normal clothes. Um, when you were in Pune, if you were around the ashram outside in, in, in Pune in town, then you would wear your normal clothes. But if you came into the, the ashram, uh, the commune, then you were asked to wear a maroon robe. So all of us would would walk around with this sort of maroon sea of people. Um, and then in the evening, you when you went to the evening meditation and the discourse, which was then a recorded discourse of Osho, because of course Osho uh, was very rarely, um, well, he, he had passed away by then. Um, so everyone would wear a white robe and that was called the evening white robe meditation. And so you'd see sannyasins, you'd recognize them by their maroon robes walking around in the day. And then in the evening at a certain time, around seven o'clock, everyone would be wearing a white robe. And yeah, I mean, you know, honestly speaking, I don't know how many of us teenagers went to the evening white robe meditation. I mean, we weren't forced to, we weren't told you should. Sometimes we didn't adhere to the maroon robe either, as rebellious teenagers don't often like to be told what to do. So often we would have people come to us and say, you know, you've got to wear your maroon robe if you're in the ashram and so on and so forth. Um, so, so, yeah, so that's, that's, that was our sort of day. Um, and most of the time at around seven o'clock when everyone was going to meditate, we would just start thinking about which party we wanted to go to. So it was, um, yeah, sometimes not aligned to the sannyasin ethos. But at a certain point, Bindu stops going to Pune. She's very young and has started acting. She has to seize the moment. There's more to do. There's life to distract her. Until she grows up, falls in love, gets married, has children, and something inevitably changes. I don't know if you can... It's not binary. You can't go into sannyas and then out of sannyas. It's it's a it's a mindset. It's a it's a way of thinking. And my name is Bindu. I mean, I'm not ever going to be anything other than Bindu. You know, this is part of who I am. Whether I'm I'm following Osho now and I call myself a sannyasin, no, not really. And yet, um, I, I'm, you know, I have a family. I live. I'm, I'm married. So as far as in inverted commas being a true sannyasin. No, I'm not. I've, I've done things that sannyasins would balk at and, and, and say, oh gosh, you're so traditional. Um, and yet in the real world, I'm, I'm also, I feel different. I am different. I've traveled the world. I've seen things that other people haven't seen or experienced. And I can definitely say I can go anywhere in the world and I can meet like-minded sannyasin kids that are now grown-ups who have experienced what I've experienced and, there, and there's that bond will always be there. You know, I can go back to Italy and meet Camilla, who's a good friend of mine. I don't see her regularly, but when we do, it's like 
we've known each other forever and we there's an, an element of understanding and i have that with loads of other sannyasin kids ex sannyasin kids current sannyasin kids um so i i don't know if i can answer that question there's not like an a way in and a way out i haven't been back to india for many years i've been back to pune for many years i would maybe someday love to show my children where i was born and where i grew up it's also a part of me that i don't necessarily share with with everyday people mostly because i know how easy it is to judge and to judge me for being different or what does that say about me if i experience this life I'm not a bad person. I this is this is it for me. This is my life. I mean, I can't be anything other than what this is and the choices that my mum and my parents made and but that's no different to anyone else. It's just about choices and um parents make choices all the time for their children. I make choices all the time for mine. And as far as my mum is concerned, yeah, she still she still would classify herself as a sannyasin, I think. um although she's also very much of this world now you would never know that she is the orange wearing mala wearing hippie of the 70s i mean you just never know that my children if they see photos of her back then and what she is now they wouldn't be able to associate the same person and yet she is quite an alternative granny you know so she she is she is different in her way in her mindset in how she sees the world and i think that's how i'm different i'm not scared by the word meditation and now it's cool to say one meditates or one does yoga and one does mindfulness but it's it's taken years for that to be cool so i'm glad maybe some of my mindset is becoming cool now at a time when i'm losing my cool with my children when i met camila she confided in me that she hadn't seen wild wild country she didn't feel ready or rather she should find the right moment she didn't know if she would do it alone or with someone else i asked bindu to tell me what it was like for her to see those images for her who had lived in the rajneeshpuram and for quite a long time when wild wild country came out on netflix i was both intrigued and scared to view it and there was sort of on facebook and on social media other sanyasins other friends of mine sort of going oh have you seen this documentary or oh, no i don't dare to see it oh yes i have it's so there was like words spreading around and i was slightly nervous i really wanted to see it but i was also nervous purely based on my history and experience of journalists taking my story or our story out of context and sensationalizing it and making a good story of it you know i don't blame journalists for doing that and documentary filmmakers for doing that it is an exciting story to tell and but it's always good to to uh, to talk about the bad and i was slightly slightly nervous about it but then my husband and i just my husband who's a journalist himself but n- hasn't grown up in the same way that i have um has of course known all about my my experiences but one thing is to hear it verbally and one thing is to see it to see it in images so i was very nervous we sat on the sofa and my heart was beating thinking oh my gosh oh my gosh this is going to be crazy and going to highlight how even crazier i am than what he already knows and truth be told i i was i was quite curious and in the end 
I, I thought it was a good piece of journalism. I think they told the story from both sides. Of course, it's always more exciting to talk about uh, sannyasins because, you know, we were wearing bright orange. Everyone was hugging. Um, we had an Indian guru. It was all about free love. It was easy to put us in the camp of, you know, sex guru commune. And yet the images that I saw really warmed my heart. It just made me think what an amazing experiment to be a part of this, this town in the middle of nowhere, completely self-sufficient, completely eco-friendly. And in a way, if you think what, what we're, what people are trying to do now and the conversation that's on the table now, it felt so advanced. It feels so advanced that these group of people came together to build something that, that, was crazy at the time, but now would would feel like an okay endeavor. So it was interesting to watch. And of course, I being a child, I was very unaware of everything that was happening politically within the sannyasin world with Sheila. Although we had certain sensations, we weren't, we didn't know the facts. We didn't know what was happening. Wild, wild country was really something that moved people's souls. I myself began my research thanks to that documentary, and Bindu's father, who we haven't talked about, but who is present in her life, also had the chance to understand something more about the world his daughter belonged to thanks to the documentary. But it's interesting because when Wild, Wild Country came out, he he also watched it and... um, he called me up and, and sort of acknowledging for the first time what my mother, the experiments that my mother had been a part of and, and that I had been a part of and acknowledging the sort of ambitiousness and, and, and really what it was about rather than just hearing about it from the outside and being worried about what was going on. He was able to see it for himself. And actually, when you see it, it isn't as strange as when you just hear about it, I think. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting, an, an interesting moment. And yet, Wild Wild Country puts the sannyasin in front of unexpected evidence. And even those who say they hadn't noticed anything, they can't help but acknowledge the responsibilities those at the top had. I ask Bindu what she thinks of this. I think the commune there, and I think sannyas and any commune, it's just a microcosm of the bigger world, of a bigger country. And the politics that were happening within the Sanyas world were politics that are happening even to this day in countries and political situations. I mean, I live in, in the UK and, and our political system is in complete crisis. And somehow that's okay because we rationalize by going, oh, that it's a democracy and they're voted in and and we accept what they say. But I think what happened with Sheila and Rajnish Puram was also a microcosm of the bigger conversation. Today, the Sanyazin attribute the great responsibility for the collapse of Rajnish Puram and part of the movement and Osha's subsequent imprisonment to Sheila, thus preserving the figure of the innocent and unsuspecting guru. But Bindu is no fool. And I ask her if she has some ideas on how things went. Let's think of the leaders of the Sanyazin movement like leaders in politics. 
It's hard to believe that Osho was unaware of what was happening. It's hard to believe that he wasn't the puppet master of the whole operation, like Sheila herself will say when she gives up her office reporting him. I can't say whether Osho or Bhagwan at the time knew what was happening really with Sheila and the political situation. I was a child then, so I really don't know. And I don't think it's my place to to make these assumptions. I think it's very easy to say he knew and he was a part of the conspiracy, so to speak. For me, Osho always represented a spiritual man, an individual who was sort of separate. He liked to raise issues and then contradict himself and say something completely opposite. He liked to keep people on their toes. I think my my peers as well felt we, we were always slightly rebellious of the Sanyas followers that would sort of hang on his every word because I don't think that's what his message was. I think his message was, think for yourself. I'm merely asking you questions, and at the end of the day, you are the one that has to go and make sense of it. And then on the flip side, he also loved to create tension. He also loved to create conflict, especially with American politicians, with uh, religious groups. With He liked to push boundaries and cause rebellion and um, cause people to to have an emotional reaction to what he said. But I've always, I always liked that. I, I, I think that's great to question, to make people question themselves. What I, what I rebelled against was the unbridled following of everything that he had to say, like a group of sheep in a, in a field. I, I, I don't agree that, with that. Whether it's Osho, whether it's other religious groups, I feel people need to to ask themselves questions. Today, Bindu is a mother. How does the perspective change? How do you come to terms with your past? How do you accept and understand your parents' choices, even when they have put you in front of a reality very different from everyone else's? It's hard to, you know, when I think about my past, it's like my past, my life, it it just was. I don't have any other life. I I often have thought, oh, if I'd had this, what would have happened? But it is, it's what made, has made me who I am. And I, going back to the past, I wouldn't redo it differently. I would do it exactly as it was because it is what it is. You know, it's, it's who I am. And I had an amazing opportunity for travel, for seeing different cultures, for thinking about really profound thoughts at a very young age for being taught to share my feelings for meditating for a whole bunch of stuff that I I wouldn't change uh, of course there's lots of there's the good experiences there's the bad experiences and yeah sometimes we we don't want to we wish we didn't have to experience the bad stuff but I think I would have experienced good and bad in whatever walk of life I would have had and being a mum, you know, my children live a very different life to, to the one I had. They live in a house uh, where they've lived all their lives. They have a mum and a dad. They go to a village school. You know, they live a very, very different life. And yet, even they have travelled and have seen the world and are aware of the same ethos that that I had. You know, we encourage them to talk about their feelings and to take time out to to feel things and to to really understand what's going on in their in their bodies and in their minds and and to be good people and to to think about others and to live with that community spirit but they don't 
they haven't had the life that I have. I mean, it's just, it's just fact. They just haven't had that. Um, and I, and I hope to take them to India. We've talked to lots about that. They know I was born in India. They know how I grew up, but one thing is knowing and one thing is really seeing it. So I, I would love to take them to India and Pune and Goa and, and to really show them what it might have been like. Yeah, that hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. I will, I will do that. And, you know, they've got a granny who's, who has pictures of Osho in her house and has Osho books. And, and she's a very alternative granny. You know, she, she likes to swear and she, she likes to make jokes and she's traveling and she's still a, a traveler. She's a very different granny and, and that's cool to them. I don't think that they, they see that as something strange. It just is. All the stories I have collected have been a great gift. Yet it is Bindu who I would never want to stop listening to. Maybe because I feel that now she's really stepping up and facing her past. That's why I ask her, since she's a screenwriter and director, if she has ever thought about telling this story in her own way, now that she has allowed me to do it for the first time. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm, I'm a storyteller at heart. I've always been a storyteller, whether it was through drama through being an actress I write scripts for tv and film now I direct I love stories I love telling stories I love hearing stories the visual ones are the best for me and I would love to tell the story of my childhood um and in fact I'm that's one of the things that I'm working on is a tv series about growing up in a different environment and what that's like for oneself in the outside world within within a commune all seen through the eyes of a child and but it's not until now it's it's really recent for me to be able to talk about it and to be comfortable in talking about it and partly it's because I'm 43 years of age now and uh, I've reached that point in my life partly it's this podcast uh, Roberta who has given voice to to telling this story positively and heartfeltly, whether it's the, the happy emotions or the sad emotions. It's, and partly it's, it's the status quo of our, of our society now. You know, it's, it's, it's okay to, to meditate now. It's, it's okay to be vegan. It's okay to do yoga. And we, we live in a world now where having this language and this vocabulary is not seen as strange anymore. And so I'm, it's the time where I'm slowly feeling more empowered to be able to say, yeah, actually, I've lived a, a different childhood and a different life and I'd like to talk about it and it's okay. And there will be people who judge me and people who won't like it, people who will um, hang their opinion of me on it. And that's okay. I can't stop that. That's people's, people's decisions. But I would love to be able to change the, the dialogue around what it's like, what it was like, and it's like to have grown up in a commune uh, following Rajneesh, to being a sannyas child. I would love to change that rhetoric and that dialogue. And I think there are, there are positives and negatives in every family, in every situation you grow up, whether you grow up in a family of a mum and a dad uh, in a lovely little house, whether you grow up uh, following the Catholic Church, whether you grow up in a sect in mid-America or whether you're a Jehovah's Witness, you are part of something and 
some unless you are a part of it you won't truly know what it's like to be to grow up in that and some people will thrive on it and some people won't some people will hang them their their memories on the bad stuff and some people will only see the positive and i think there's two stories to every situation and i would love to be able to to talk about that and to say actually it's very easy to to label someone as strange as as crazy as out there if they're wearing orange and a mala but there are two stories to every situation and i'd love to be a part of that and to tell both sides of that story and all these colors are the same ones i think bindu has offered me first with her silence then looking for me then entrusting me with an unexpected story and finally leaving me with the curiosity to know even more about her life several times while writing this episode i've been deeply moved i don't know why maybe because i've interjected so many stories maybe because of the gratitude i feel for having been entrusted with such intimate stories for the sense of responsibility that bindu has granted me with by giving me her trust and that i felt even stronger than usual or maybe because thanks to bindu i was suddenly there in all of the stories i've been told and i finally saw all the children together i saw them meeting in pune in england in oregon i saw them recognizing each other in germany in amsterdam and milan and i understood the deep meaning of the sentences they told me when they spoke about their special bond about those few hundred children in the world who have experienced something unique for better or worse who when they meet they recognize each other at first sight who knows maybe from today i will be able to recognize them too You've been listening to Soli, a journey into the memories of children who grew up in Osh's commune between the beginning of the 70s and the first half of the 80s. I'm Roberta Lippi and this is storielibere.fm. The international version of Soli has been translated by Edoardo Rialti. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Storie libere production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele.